This is the Incubator and the Neonatology Review Podcast. We are your study buddies for neonatology topics. I'm Dr. Ben Korsha. And I'm Dr. Daphne Yasova Barbo. Welcome. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Incubator and Neonatology Review Podcast. It is Tuesday. Daphne, how's it going? I got to hand it to you. You're always willing to go the extra mile and do the extra work. Always, because I feel like it's an opportunity for me to get better. That's very commendable of you. You guys don't always see what happens in the in the in the background here when I when I purposely go, decide to go first. <laughs> it makes me miserable by the way but i have i i will not i will never complain about the uh yeah anyway i will okay. never complain about that <laughs> today we will start with allergic gastroenteropathy which is actually not my favorite topic but i'll leave liver to you can you imagine you can imagine what's coming up then <laughs> <laughs> all right so i will start with a uh, cow's milk protein intolerance <laughs> another thing that is a uh, a great masquerader, right? Yeah. Um, right. So symptoms are usually within the first six months of age. It's usually seen in infants fed cow's milk or cow's milk-based formulas, although it can be observed in breastfed infants if the mother consumes cow's milk. And I think I think our theories about that are, are evolving over time. The symptoms are diarrhea, hematochesia, anemia, edema, eczema, and vomiting. These babies in general are not well. Um, and it is not one of the ways you can distinguish, you know, uh, milk protein intolerance from like reflux, right? These babies are really not well. They frequently have increased white blood cells because of inflammation. They can have decreased platelets. The pathology shows, again, damage to the mucosa. The jejunal biopsy shows inflammation, eosinophils, and lacteal dilation. And the management is really to delay the introduction of cow's milk until after uh, age six months. And symptoms may decrease after changing to a non-cow's milk formula or formula with hydrolyzed protein. Um, soy protein can also be sensitizing. What does that mean? So it means that they can uh, cross-react. Um, so really, uh, soy uh, proteins um, are not the way to go in the cow's right. milk so protein. So if you have a question that... Right. that highlights cow's milk protein intolerance right. and they say do you want to switch to soy yeah you say no no <laughs> that's right it's really the high the formulas with hydrolyzed proteins okay. um and in general the prognosis is pretty good after you get through that miserable few months um they can usually tolerate cow's milk after about age nine to twelve months um this is related to uh allergic colitis um but uh, allergic colitis tends to have less severe symptoms, uh, but these babies typically present uh, with blood and mucus in the stool, and they are also managed by removing the quote-unquote offending formula. Okay. okay. All right. Do you want to... Okay, let's talk about liver. That's it. That's my turn. Sorry. All right. So talking about liver, the first... Um, the first item is conjugated hyperbilirubinemia. Ugh. I love that topic. It's fun. I mean, it's not fun for the babies, but it's, it's yeah. interesting. So what is the etiology of increased direct bilirubin levels? Um, 
well, you have an increased direct fraction of the serum bilirubin levels that can cause uh, that can be caused by abnormal bilirubin formation or flow. Now, what is that number? Technically, the conjugated fraction should be no greater than fifty percent, fifteen percent. Sorry, one five, fifteen percent of total bilirubin. I think um, it can get pretty tricky when you have low bilirubin levels to begin with. I think. Um, having spoken to hepatologists in the past, I think if the levels are low, a, a bilirubin level of two or more gets, can, can get to be concerning. But I think for test purposes, it should be pretty evident that it will be a high, you will get like a high total bilirubin level with a with a nice uh, direct component. The incidence is about one in twenty five hundred babies. The clinical presentation is fairly straightforward. They'll have jaundice, <clears throat> they'll have uh, hepatomegaly, and they can have acolic stools, uh, which which we see and 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 is not something that is uncommon. Um, the um, laboratory component is very simple, high in, increased direct component of bilirubin, but the differential is really what uh, the crux of the issue is here. So. <clears throat> The, any, like anything related to the liver, the first component should be, is this a viral component? Is it, uh, is it a viral infection? Any other form of infection? Could it be toxoplasmosis? Could it be syphilis? Could it be tuberculosis? Could it be listeriosis? Um, all these infectious um, etiologies must be ruled out. It could be toxin-mediated. It could be uh, a spike in direct bilirubin in the context of sepsis. It could be uh, related to drugs. It could be related to prolonged parenteral nutrition, which for I think most of us is the most likely uh, scenario in which we see babies with cholestasis. Um, now, the question that always gets interesting is when does a baby that's been on TPN for some time can be sort of eligible to be qualified as a baby that has uh, parenteral uh, nutrition-associated liver disease, also known as PNALD. And I think um, in the book, Dr. Brodsky and Martin mention uh, an increased if it's dependent on uh, parenteral nutrition for more than two weeks. I think I've seen, I've seen anything being reported as either more than two weeks, more than three weeks, more than four weeks. So I think a baby, uh, you'll get presented a baby that's been on TPN for the last six weeks, and then they'll tell you, here's his liver profile. Now, the one thing that is important is that um, the liver is also the source of uh, symptoms when it comes to metabolic disease. So galactosemia, glycogen storage disease, tyrosinemia, alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency, um, hypopituitarism, uh, hypothyroidism, cystic fibrosis, Zellweger syndrome, um, all these have to be considered. And I think also in those cases, the timing will be very interesting. I think um, for these metabolic disease, it's less likely that you'll be presented with a micropremie that's been on TPN for eight weeks, but more maybe with a full term that uh, is now presenting a few, first few days of life. So uh, we'll talk about those presentations of metabolic disease in the metabolic section of the, of the review. There could be some genetic uh, syndromes like Turner syndrome, trisomy 21. There could be some vascular uh, etiologies like Bud Chiari uh, or any other form of uh, vascular anomalies like hemangiomas. And then you have all the zebras, neonatal leukemia, HLH, lupus, and so on. So 
The question then becomes, why are you having increased direct hypervalorubinemia? And the, the question of the duct uh, in, in the liver is, has to be asked. Is this, a, is this something that is intrahepatic? Is this inside the liver or is this outside the liver? So if it's intrahepatic, the, the, the first thing that needs to be considered is neonatal uh, idiopathic hepatitis. Um, and I think what's interesting is that when it comes to cholestasis, biliary atresia and idiopathic neonatal hepatitis together account for about 60 to 70% of these cases. So um, I think that's, that is something that to me feels easy, easily, you could easily get question on this. Um, Full-term baby, no real dependence on TPN, has cholestasis. The first two thoughts should be biliary atresia versus, uh, versus hepatitis. Mm -hmm. Other other disease could be allergial syndrome, where basically uh, allergial is a. We, we will talk about it in the in the genetic section, but it's basically you have uh, you're born with a genetic defect where your number of intrahepatic bile ducts is decreased, um, and um, uh, and you have these uh, usually these triangular facies and the tubural anomalies, and then you could have a paucity of bile ducts as we just talked about, but that's not really associated with any syndromes. Now let's talk about extrahepatic duct obstruction. And so this is when uh, biliary atresia really is, uh, is an important one. Um, and the thing about biliary atresia is that really it's time sensitive. And I think your diagnosis, this is something that the boards always love to ask. I mean, if I remember correctly, the pediatric boards love to ask about biliary atresia because your ability to recognize this disease will reduce the damage caused and will lead to better outcomes for like, I think it's uh, the Kasai procedure, right? I mean, uh, uh, and, and eventually even transplant if that's what's needed. Mm -hmm. So um, there's really an, an impediment for us to be able to recognize this disease. Um, <clears throat> you could have uh, extrahepatic obstruction due to sclerosing cholangitis to uh, bile duct stenosis. You could have uh, something that uh, we've seen before, Daphne and I, colidocal cysts yes. with cystic dilation of the common bile duct, which happens in about 0.5 to 1 million births. So can't believe that we've been <laughs> practiced for such a short amount of time. And we, we saw it. <laughs> and then bile plug syndrome. So what is, uh, I wanted to, uh, now that we've, we've given these outlines, we just said, that biliary atresia is really something that is important for us to recognize. So let's talk about that for one second. Um, the incidence is about one in 10 to 20,000 uh, infants in North America. Uh, the bile ducts are abnormal, they're narrow, they're blocked, or they're just completely absent. There's really three variants. There's the non-syndromic form, which is accounting for about 85% of cases. There is one associated malformation without laterality, that's 6% of cases, and there's syndromic with laterality defects in 10% of cases. They have early direct hypervalorubinemia and, and or cholestasis. The timeliness of diagnosis and intervention is critical. If it is within the first two months, you have 70% will establish bile flow. If after 90 days, only 25% will be able to establish bile flow. So that gives you really uh, points uh, in order of magnitude when it comes to that. In terms of the other culprit, when it comes to um, direct hyperbilirubinemia, idiopathic neonatal hepatitis, uh, you should see multinucleated giant cells and increased alpha feeder protein. Um, the diagnostic approach uh, to cholestasis is quite extensive. 
and um, I'm, I can walk you through some of the questions that you should be asking. So if you have an, an infant that's jaundiced in, and is about like two to eight weeks old, two to eight weeks old, the first question you should be asking is, is the patient acutely okay. ill requiring urgent care, right? And if, if it is, then you should automatically start thinking about some of these really nasty um, metabolic diseases, uh, galactosemia, tyrosinemia, and so on and so forth. You should also be thinking of um, infections. Um, so then you, um, the patient is not acutely ill, then you should you want to ask the question, is there direct hyperbilirubinemia? And you're going to measure it. And so um, if there is uh, normal, then we're okay. But what if it's abnormal? Then you say, okay, there's cholestatic jaundice. So then you want to gather as much information as possible from your history, from your physical exam, and from urine studies. And um, I guess afterwards, you really start entering into the nitty-gritty of consulting PEDS GI, trying to check for alpha-1 antitrypsin. You want to do abdominal ultrasounds. And once you've ruled out sort of a low alpha-1 antitrypsin, you want to rule out a cholidocal cyst. Um, then you can start looking at biliary obstruction through uh, percutaneous liver biopsy, uh, ERCP, and so on and so forth. So the management is basically, if you have an underlying disorder, you should treat that. And um, the, the treatment options are obviously to consider ursodeoxycholic acid, or Actigol, as we'd like to call it here. Um, you can consider phenobarbital or fat-soluble vitamin supplementation, so your ADPK. Um, I think this is... I think is... you did a very good job. Well, thank you, madam. <laughs> okay. All right. Did you have something else you wanted no. to No, 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 no. Then I, I will knock out the acquired disorders of the GI tract, huh? Well, I'll, this is what I'll do, the gastrointestinal bleeding. Yeah, I think yes, that's what you meant. That's okay. what I, meant to <laughs> I was going to be like, Sorry. knock, no. knock out. Oh, <laughs> oh she's going to knock out like six pages. Oh, good for uh, her. No, no. We will keep sit a neck for tomorrow. Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay. So, uh, gastrointestinal bleeding. So, we're really, uh, you know, this was something we learned, I think, very thoroughly when we were practicing adult medicine, like in mm -hmm. medical school. And I think that we don't use this paradigm so much when we're talking about neonates, but we should, because I think it will really help us target where bleeding is coming from. So it's really first trying to decide, do you have upper GI bleeding or do you have lower GI bleeding? And um, what does that mean? So uh, the GI is really split into these two segments um, at the ligament of trites. And if you remember, the ligament of trites is a thin band of tissue that connects and supports kind of the end of the duodenum and the beginning of the jejunum in the small intestine. It basically tethers it into position. It's also called the suspensory ligament of the duodenum. So anything proximal... She felt old from your days in medical school. That's there right. You go. It's back Courtesy there. of Dr. Barbeau. <laughs> it's back there, all that information. <laughs> so if you're proximal to the ligament of trites, um, then we call that upper GI bleeding. And if you're distal to the ligament of trites, we call that lower GI bleeding. So let's talk about upper GI bleeding first. The clinical presentation um, is you may have hematemesis, so 
frank, bloody emesis, bright red blood uh, suggests an active, ongoing process. You may see coffee ground emesis, but this would suggest a slower, more indolent process or an older, non-active process such as um, such that gastric acid has had the time to convert hemoglobin to brown uh, hematin. So, for example, swallowed maternal blood um, that has had the opportunity to sit um, and convert. Um, melanin, uh, you may see melanin, which is a black tarry stools. Um, the dark color uh, usually, though not always, suggests an upper GI source, but again, that it's had that time uh, to come through the rest of the GI system. The differential diagnosis for upper GI bleeding is swallowed maternal blood, esophagitis, gastritis, gastroduodenal ulcers, coagulopathy, cow's milk allergy, intestinal duplication, which I think is a good one. And then I'm going to add uh, like traumatic. So I think NG tubes, OG tubes, replogals, um, endotracheal tubes, all of those things, deep suctioning um, can cause upper GI bleeding. Um, and let's talk about now lower GI bleeding. So again, distal to the ligament of trites, this usually presents with hematochesia. So bright red blood from the rectum typically suggests lower GI sources, but can be seen if you have massive upper GI bleeding. The differential diagnosis uh, here, some of them are the same. Um, swallowed maternal blood, allergic colitis, anorectal fissures, neck, infectious diarrhea, malrotation, volvulus, Meckel's diverticulum, something that we don't think about very often in the NICU. And this is seen, uh, if you'll remember, in the distal ileum, Hirschsprung's disease, uh, and coagulopathy, which I think is a, a good one um, to remember. So the management, so first, confirm that it's blood. Check a hemocult or a guaiac test to confirm stool uh, or emesis is consistent with blood. And then you can assess the source of the blood. Uh, you can do an app test if you think, oh, this is swallowed maternal blood. This distinguishes between maternal and fetal hemoglobin. You can place a replogal tube to assess for the source of bleeding and to monitor the volume of blood loss. Evaluating for anemia can also help you quantify the blood loss. Evaluate for coagulopathy. Um, and if indicated, correct the coagulopathy. If there's a significant amount of blood loss, then you would prepare for a blood transfusion and fluid resuscitation. You could consider acid suppression depending on the cause of the bleeding. Consider contrast studies to evaluate for malrotation, volvulus, Hirschsprung's disease, depending on how acute the bleeding is. Consider endoscopy, which is typically reserved for severe or recurrent bleeding. And then, of course, uh, calling in the consult, uh, consultation of your uh, local GI or surgical physician. I was on mute, sorry. Thank you very much. <laughs> My pleasure. All right, I'll see you tomorrow. Okay, bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Incubator and Neonatology Review Podcast. If you like our show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We would love to hear from you, so please feel free to reach out to Daphna and I via email by sending your messages to nikupodcast at gmail.com. You can also message the show on Twitter at nikupodcast. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care practitioner. Thank you.